Welcome to Business Books and Company. Every month, we read great business books and explore how they can help us navigate our careers. Read along with us so you can become a stronger leader within your company or a more adept entrepreneur. Amazon Unbound is the story of how Jeff Bezos has managed his business empire over the past decade. It picks up where author Brad Stone's last book, The Everything Store, left off circa about 2013. Stone chronicles Bezos' incredible attention to detail on Amazon projects like the Echo and the Fire Phone, as well as his stewardship of the Washington Post and Blue Origin. There's also controversies in the book about Bezos' personal life and his high-profile affair and divorce. We get an inside look into the trials, triumphs, and tribulations of this living legend and the organizations that he runs. But before we get into the book, let's introduce ourselves. Hi, I'm David Short. I'm a product manager at a bank where I work on instant payments. Hi, I'm Eli Mitchell. I am a former management consultant, and now I am head of growth strategies at a retail health company. And I'm David Kopeck. I'm an assistant professor of computer science. Let's start with the author of Amazon Unbound. He is known for writing his first book about Amazon, The Everything Store, and he followed it up with this incredible volume. Who is author Brad Stone? Yeah, so as Kopeck already mentioned, Brad Stone wrote both The Everything Store, his 2013 work on the founding of Amazon through 2012, as well as this book, Amazon Unbound. He has also written a couple of other books, although I think the Amazon ones have been the most successful. He was raised in Cleveland and attended Columbia University. He is a journalist. He is currently the senior executive editor of the Global Technology Group at Bloomberg and previously worked at the New York Times and Newsweek. Very accomplished author. I think he also wrote The Upstarts, which I know David read a few years ago because I did too. Let's go on to the main character of the book, Jeff Bezos. Most people around the world are familiar with him, but maybe you can tell us just a little bit about his background and what he does today. Yeah, Jeff Bezos is the founder and CEO of Amazon, although he will be stepping down. So by the time this episode airs, uh, he may no longer be. Uh, July 5th is actually his first day of not being CEO. So coming back from the the holiday weekend upcoming, he will uh, resign as CEO and be replaced by uh, Jassy. He was born in Albuquerque in 1964 and raised in Houston and Miami. He was valedictorian of Miami Palmetto High School, a school I actually uh, am familiar with. I, I debated against them and, and helped uh, judge for them in, in college. He then studied electrical engineering and computer science at Princeton. He worked at Fitel, a fintech telecom startup, Bankers Trust, and D.E. Shaw before starting Amazon in 1994. In addition to Amazon, he is also the owner of the Washington Post and Blue Origin. And as of late June, he is the richest person in the world with an estimated net worth of $199 billion. You know, I forgot he studied computer science. It's amazing. Him and Bill Gates, richest men in the world, seems like a good thing to study. Okay, so we know a little bit about Jeff and about Brad. Let's talk about the companies that this book focuses on. Of course, the big one is Amazon. Most people are familiar with it. Maybe you can just tell us a little bit about it. But we have an international audience that might not be as familiar with the Washington Post and Blue Origin. So can you tell us a little bit about Amazon and also just briefly what the Washington Post is and what Blue Origin is? Yeah, so just at a high level, Amazon is a global e-commerce company worth $1.7 trillion. They have expanded into many other areas, which I'm sure we'll, we'll dig into throughout this discussion. The Washington Post is the most widely circulating daily uh, newspaper in D.C. Uh, it's been around since 1877. And Blue Origin is a privately funded aerospace company 
that Bezos founded in 2000 that's currently focused mostly on consumer space travel, although they are also seeking government contracts. Okay, so the book covers so much, but let's start with what most people are reading the book for, which is the stories from within Amazon. So what were your favorite stories in the book about Amazon? Of course, different chapters cover different sections of Amazon. They're kind of like little vignettes, and we're not going to be able to go into every one, but I'm wondering which you found the most compelling. Yeah, so Kopec, as you already said, each chapter is kind of just a, a deep dive into one Amazon concept, some that people are probably very familiar with, right? Like logistics and Amazon Prime and how your packages get to your door. And some that maybe you did, didn't know anything about, such as like Amazon in India or uh, the marketing chapter, which was titled The Gold Mine in the Backyard. I feel like there were snippets from each of these. One of my favorites was in the chapter about Amazon Echo. You know, you got, uh, I think it actually started, I think that was the first chapter in the book was Echo or the Alexa devices. Uh, so anyone not familiar, right? The devices in your room that you can speak to and have it play music. Although Jeff Bezos would say many more things than that. And what came across in that chapter was how involved Bezos was in the development process. Um, and, you know, there were, different teams that were all saying, you know, like it's very hard to capture speaking voices like this when somebody isn't like speaking directly to a computer, you're trying to uh, catch it from across the room. And he just kept on insisting that, you know, it needs to be able to do this. And here are the functions that I want it to be able to do. And eventually, you know, came to fruition. One of the challenges that they had during this was like, they just don't, didn't have much data, right? Like, uh, Apple has a bunch of data for creating Siri from your iPhone and such, but Amazon had no way of naturally collecting a lot of data of kind of natural users speaking. And eventually they came up with this idea of paying actors to sit in uh, hotel rooms or apartments that they furnished out and just like read scripts or not read scripts, but the script would prompt them like, talk to an assistant as though you need to schedule something on a calendar. And like they would just like have a conversation about this and there would be devices all around capturing how they were talking. And I, I thought that was just, you know, a, a unique way that showed how they were trying to really leapfrog uh, advancements in technology and make the investments in order to collect the data that they needed. Absolutely. And I love what you said about how hands-on he was, because that really comes across in the book. In fact, the original Echo, he like sketched it out on a piece of paper and was like, I want y'all to build this. Pretty incredible that it was his vision and really his idea. You don't get that from a CEO who's that long in the game, usually being that hands-on. The Echo device that he sketched out, they, you know, they show the picture of it. It actually looks a lot like how it ended up looking. It's pretty impressive. Yeah, absolutely. Very impressive. What other vignettes did you find interesting? I, I really enjoyed hearing about the first Prime Day. I thought it was just like cool to to hear about the the whole story of pulling that together, like how quickly it was turned around, the scale that ended up coming from it, and like honestly how how big of a deal it ended up being. Um, I found it especially interesting because I was actually at Wayfair when they launched their knockoff of Prime Day, uh, Way Day. And it was really crazy for to, to be around the company for that, too, because I was not like directly involved in the rollout at all. But I did see the impacts. And it was one it was actually sprung on like most of the company last minute, too, because they did want to keep it a secret. So like the teams that needed to know like warehouse and stuff like that were informed earlier. But 
for you know other teams we didn't find out until like shortly before the public did and i imagine amazon went through you know a lot of a lot of similar things it was a a really cool uh story to hear but it was also interesting that like it seemed like pretty much everyone who was involved left quickly because it was just like such a like tumultuous thing and like people didn't like respond that positively and i feel like bezos was like kind of critical of a lot of things that like even though prime day obviously ended up being very successful it's still like seemed like the people that were were there like just got burned out by it and had to leave. I like some of the vignettes that showed how relentless Amazon is and how relentless their culture is. Two of those I would say would be Amazon in India and also the Prime Video chapter where Amazon enters a market, they're not necessarily doing that great in the market, but they just keep chugging at it, throwing everything they can to be a winner to get market share. It reminds me a lot of Microsoft in the 1980s and the 1990s. Microsoft was known for coming out with a version 1.0 of a product that wasn't very good, but you knew once they entered the market, they would keep at it, keep iterating, keep getting better and better over time, finding new ways to innovate and new ways to just gain market share. And that was really evident, I think, in several of these vignettes, but especially Prime Video, because when they first came out, they really didn't know what they were doing exactly. They brought in some folks from Hollywood, but they also were trying to kind of impose some things from their own culture on how the productions would be developed. But they just kept at it till they were winning Emmy Awards. And they they kept at it in a way where they were willing to throw out when something wasn't working or even throw out, frankly, people when they weren't working, which I think speaks to something I'm sure we'll talk about later, which is kind of their culture of employee I don't I don't want to use the wrong word here, but let's just say that they've had some controversies around how employees are treated. I think uh, what you're trying to say is how they're very transactional with employees. Um, and, and I agree to Kopech. I, I mean, I think that there are a lot of stories in here about just how much money they are willing to invest in uh, new concepts and new ideas. So two others in there were the Fire Phone and Amazon Go. And I think both of these, uh, similar similar to the points about Echo of Bezos was super involved and as the CEO really had this vision that he wanted to push for and one worked out, well, Echo worked out, uh, Fire Phone definitely did not work out, Amazon Go, I think still still up in the air. But Fire Phone was just like this example. I mean, they they put a lot of money, many years, I think it was like five years from the time that the team was created for Fire Phone until they actually launched it. And it was one of those things where, you know, Jeff Bezos just insisted on many aspects of it. I think there was like, he wanted it to be able to show 3D images on top of the screen or something, which you can, you can actually see if you like take a step back, you can be like, you know, if that works, right? Like that maybe actually would have revolutionized phones. But it didn't work, and the engineers knew it wasn't going to work. And I think it just showed some of the more negative aspects of the corporate culture, right? That like it flopped, and basically none of the uh, engineers were surprised about it. Uh, they all they all knew it was going to flop. Nobody really had confidence in it, but they weren't able to like really freely step up and say so. Now that's said, I, I do think that we also read about reservations in the book that engineers had on Echo and Amazon Go. Amazon Go being the concept um, they can just go into a store and pick up something and walk out of the store and it's all charged to your Amazon account. I've never been into one, so I, I would love to see it in person. But, you know, these are really big concepts that Bezos has formulated that he really pushes the engineers on. And I think 
Fire Phone was just an example where the engineers were pretty confident it wasn't going to work. And it's they still launched it because there wasn't really a forum for them to give any feedback there. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Fire Phone because it's really one of the only examples where they really did totally give up. Like even things like Amazon Pantry, where they were kind of experimenting with home delivery, they still kept up other ways of doing food delivery. But with Fire Phone, it was just such an embarrassment that they they were just like, okay, we got to get out of this and stop embarrassing ourselves. And it's it's a difficult one because it's one that Bezos was really personally involved in in the same way that he was, as you mentioned, with the Echo. So it really is like the one, I think, of all the vignettes in the book about Amazon, the one that you could truly say was a failure. I feel like Amazon in China is maybe like the one other pretty clear failure, although I don't, I don't know if they fully shut down. I, I actually don't remember if they, if they covered that. Um, but it, it's clear that all the investment they did in India is because they know they like blew it in China. Um, and I, I, I found actually that vignette like really compelling. So would, would love to talk about that one a little bit more. The um, like whole dynamic of the first OP1 meeting, I thought was really cool. Let me let, let me see. I think I have the, the quote here. But the 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 India team was like coming back and, you know, presenting to Bezos about like how the you know first year or six months or whatever had gone. And here it is. Yeah, he goes uh, in most OP1 sessions, he usually spoke last not to sway the group with his formidable opinion. But this time he interjected while Agarwal was still giving his presentation. You guys are going to fail. He bluntly told the Indian crew, I don't need computer scientists in India. I need cowboys. Don't come to me with a plan that assumes I will only make a certain level of investment. Uh, tell me how to win. Then tell me how much it costs. So I, I thought like that was that was interesting to see like how passionate about India Bezos was. And I, I felt like it was because he felt like he'd, he'd blown it with China. Can I just say personal vignette here? Uh, maybe I'm the idiot, but I did not know who Amit Agarwal was, uh, the Amazon CEO of India. And Amit Agarwal is also the name of a luxury fashion designer in India, from which I am getting some clothes for my upcoming wedding. So I do a lot of searching, uh, you know, Google searching for Amit Agarwal. And it like, the fashion designer never comes up. And I'm always just like, this is ridiculous. Like there, this is a retail store. Why is it not the first uh, Google search result here? And now I understand that it's because there is another Amit Agarwal that is a very big deal. So I learned that in the book. I appreciated it. Yeah. And it was interesting with the whole dynamic with Flipkart, how they had former Amazon employees who actually went to India and started their own e-commerce company and then Amazon was actually competing against them and there was talk of buying them. And there was, there was a great kind of back and forth there between the two competitors for market share in India. It, w- it was pretty interesting. So great, really compelling chapter. I'm wondering if there were any vignettes in the book that kind of left you wanting. So there was something that you were hoping was covered more. I know for me, one of those is AWS. AWS, Amazon Web Services, is one of their most profitable areas. And there's almost nothing in the book about it. I think there might have been like half of one chapter, which is kind of surprising for a book about Amazon, largely, that doesn't cover where they make, I think it's most of their profit, actually. I I I think it's 60%. Yeah. Yeah. It's a majority of their profit. And it's hardly mentioned in the book. So I thought that was pretty surprising. To be fair. Was it in the everything store? I was wondering if that's that's what I was about to say. yeah. Yeah. It's covered in the everything store. But it's still, over the last decade, one of the most important parts of Amazon. And if you're going into this book hoping to hear more about it, you're really not going to get very much. 
It's probably because Brad Stone is a journalist. He does not realize how much AWS has changed. So like, I think that is probably like where his lack of like adding additional details comes from, you know, because AWS is so different from when, you know, 2012, when he last, last wrote about it. But like, to his perspective, it's just like it got a lot bigger. That's fair. Is there anything else you felt was kind of lacking? Like there were parts of Amazon is so big and there's only so much you can cover in 400 pages. But were there other parts of Amazon where you're kind of like, I would have liked to have seen more of this? I felt like they kind of glossed over like one day shipping a little bit. Like I just like feel like from a logistics perspective, they went into the logistics like much more broadly about like prime and two day shipping and like shifting towards having their own planes and stuff like that, which obviously were important for it. But like they kind of were just like, yeah, they demanded it. And Jeff said, let's do it. And it happened. And like they were able to do it. It was like kind of a weird like, I guess maybe they felt like they'd spent enough time on it at that point. But I I, I was curious like to to learn more about what all had to, to change to really make that happen. Yeah. And I think with that short, they didn't talk much about um, what is it called? Like Amazon Hopper, the essentially the Uber like app that they use to employ people that supports the one day shipping. You know, I, I think they talked they talked a little bit about f- their fulfillment centers and well they actually talked a bit about how Jeff uh thinks about employees at the fulfillment centers and essentially that they should be replaced after three years. But yeah, they didn't really go into this whole like, you know, third party employment that they've created to support one day shipping. I think that they they did talk about it, but I feel like maybe it's just because they don't really know the answer yet on having, you know, being a marketplace for third-party vendors and just all of the issues that they've had on their website with quality assurance, with, you know, fraudulent vendors and such. And I know if we had Molson on here, I'm sure that this would be like the first thing that he would jump on uh, to talk about with Amazon being that he is a, you know, vendor that uses Amazon of just the proliferation of super low cost, like really cheap products, you know, predominantly from China that for me, like for me personally, as a consumer, Amazon has basically become a place where I go to buy like Amazon specific products, right? Like, you know, there's the Kindle, Kindle, the Alexa devices and everything. Or if I like need really cheap knockoff, right? Like I went on and bought like, you know, a $15 bathing suit that says bride on it because I'm like, great, I'll wear it once and never again. And it'll probably fall apart. But like, it's just no longer the place where I personally go for anything of quality. And, you know, they talked about doing like some A-B test to see if people spend more money or less money. I guess that was with ads. But there wasn't really a conclusion there about what are what are they doing about that proliferation of their marketplace. Yeah, we're really on the same wavelength about the book, Eli. I felt the same way. I It's one of the biggest issues facing Amazon right now. It's one of the reasons that Congress is after them. The way that they treat third-party sellers is really of two minds. On one hand, they make it easy for a lot of these businesses to even exist in the first place. On the other hand, they do almost nothing in terms of fraud protection, in terms of IP issues, in terms of making sure that the competition from international sellers doesn't use dirty tactics against some domestic sellers. So Amazon doesn't really, I think, keep a fair marketplace in many ways. And that's one of the reasons they're being so lambasted. And there's not that much in this book about it. There's maybe, I think it's about half a chapter that really goes into it quite a bit. And I think this is one of the big issues for Amazon over the next few years. Yeah, I think they did cover it. And I guess the point is there's, there is there there are so many stories, like honestly... 
we can say like they didn't cover sort of anything enough because they kind of didn't like maybe maybe it would have been I, not that I didn't like this book because I, I will say I recommend it you know at the, at the end as we always you know answer but I do feel like it, it maybe does try to cover too much in you know 300 or so pages that it, it really doesn't go super deep on too much of the uh, the areas yeah I think that's a fair criticism okay let's talk a bit about Bezos himself because the book is both about Amazon but it's also about him personally and of course his other ventures there's a case made that he's really transformed on a personal level over the past decade. How so? So I actually think that uh, there's this meme that I love, if anybody's ever seen it, that really captures how Jeff Bezos has transformed. And the meme basically has him looking like a really nerdy guy in 1998 saying, I sell books. And then in it has a picture of him in 2017, if you've ever seen it, you know, at this Allen and Company retreat where he's wearing like a slim cut polo with a, a black vest over it uh, and bald looking, very spelt. And it says, I sell whatever the blank I want. And I think this this captures, uh, Kopech, the, the point uh, that Brad Stone makes in the book of he, he really starts out kind of nerdy, uh, focused a website selling uh, books. And he's grown over the course of this book to be the richest man in the world, has the ego that goes along with it, has, you know, goes toe to toe with the president of the United States, uh, you know, and with owning Washington Post and such, and is now going to space, right, is kind of how the book ends. And what I actually thought was interesting, though, is like, so frequently throughout the book, it, it would come back to the managers at Amazon thinking, okay, he has Washington Post, he has Blue Origin, he has his new girlfriend, like maybe he's going to pull back and calm down a little bit. And then they go into an S team meeting and he is all about the details again and the meeting is entirely derailed and they're giving him a lot of credit for helping to push them grow, but you know, also pushing them to work very long hours and such. So I actually, you know, like felt like despite him personally changing, it seemed like his management style at Amazon stayed the same throughout the book. Did you guys uh, feel that that was any different? That sounds right to me, actually. I think that that resonates a lot. I think he he definitely changed personally. Um, and yeah, I, I love that meme too. But I think that the management style did seem to be pretty consistent. And it seemed like they really do struggle in like the response to criticism because of like his confidence in like the way that he thinks things should be run. So I think it'll honestly be very interesting to see the next phase of Amazon. You know, what does happen as he steps down as CEO? He, he'd obviously pulled back a lot with his focus on Blue Origin and and on the Washington Post. And then um, as they describe in the book, he came full force back to Amazon when COVID hit because obviously it was, you know, incredibly impactful on Amazon. They had to, you know, grow tremendously over short periods of time and, you know, figure out ways to operate during a pandemic, which they both, you know, failed spectacularly at and, you know, succeeded in interesting ways with as well. But yeah, I, th I think his leadership style seemed to stay the same, even though, yeah, he became this this public figure. And honestly, I learned a lot more about his personal life stuff because I just did, don't pay attention to that kind of news as much where like, I guess I didn't I didn't realize that. Lauren Sanchez's brother had actually posted the material. I think I kind of did believe that that Saudi Arabia and MBS were involved. So it was it was interesting to to read some of that. Although, like I guess, more more tabloid fodder than anything you really need to know from a business book. Right. 
that's the question, right? Did the book need to go there? There's a whole chapter about him having this affair and how it ended up playing out in the media. And this is a seemingly a business book, but it's a book about Jeff Bezos as well. I actually like when these type of books cover the whole picture because I'm sure that affected his thinking during those years. I mean, that was actually quite recent, the last couple of years. I'm sure that's affecting your day-to-day performance when you're having these kind of big things going on in the media. They make it seem like it really didn't, but should they have even gone there? I think yes, but what do the two of you think? I think you kind of have to in the sense that like the divorce obviously happened and was public and that, you know, made Mackenzie Bezos, I, I don't know what the stats are, but, you know, certainly one of, if not like the richest woman in the world. And, and that that actually had potentially some impact on like uh, things that were happening with the Amazon stock. That, that was an interesting little tidbit too, that Brad Stone basically is just speculating because I don't think anyone is ever going to confirm this, but that Amazon had like floated to their, um, you know, large institutional investors, the idea of shifting to like a a multi-tiered stock because it was founded before that was common. But, you know, Facebook and a lot of the the new tech companies have, um, you know, class A and class B or, you know, other other types of shares such that the owner or the founder is able to to maintain voting rights, even as they sell more and more of the uh, equity in the company. Yeah, I mean, it, it was high entertainment value. That was a very entertaining chapter um, going into all of the details on the divorce and the tabloids and such. And short, similarly, I was ill-informed and did not really know everything that had happened there. It was very entertaining to read. It was very uh, confusing to follow all of the characters. I think I was like, I really couldn't keep track of uh, who was turning on who in that chapter. And and just uh, for our listeners that maybe are unaware, what, what was happening was Jeff Bezos was having an affair uh, somewhat openly with Lauren Sanchez. Uh, and she shared all of it with her brother, uh, you know, her brother had like met Jeff Bezos while he was married to Mackenzie, right? Like it was a pretty open affair, it seems. But, you know, she sent him screenshots and such from their text chains. And her brother, Michael Sanchez, went and sold it to the National Enquirer. And then, yeah, the story that came out because there were text messages in the story about it was like, oh, maybe it's that MBS hacked his phone. And Weird, like honestly, I couldn't even tell in the book if they if uh Bradstone believes that MBS hacked his phone or not because they they were like, yeah, well, like that's not how the National Enquirer got this story, but there was like, but his phone was confiscated and they actually did think that there was like he clicked on this video from MBS at some point and his phone actually was hacked. Anyways, like do do I think all of that detail was needed? Um, probably. Yeah, I agree with your point, Kopak, that it would affect how he's thinking. And I, I think there were a few times when it's referenced in the book, right? Like when with HQ2 that he insisted that there would be helipads and everyone was like, why are you adding helipads to this? And then it comes out that he's having an affair with Lauren Sanchez who has a helicopter license. And like, is that one of the things that really derailed uh, HQ2? I don't know. But I think it was entertaining. You know, my my overall take on the book is that it wasn't so much details on the business as entertaining and reading <laughs> more chapters also read like tabloid fodder of like the gossip of what happened behind different decisions. So it felt like it fit in because of that. Well, you brought up HQ2. Let's go there. Let's talk about HQ2. It was a big public coming out party for Amazon in many ways in that Amazon had a long history of being in the public eye. 
but they hadn't had as much of a lobbying arm, it seems like, before this whole experience with HQ2. And some of it kind of blew up in their face because of the way that they approached it. So let's talk a little bit about the whole process of selecting HQ2. How did Amazon go about that? And why did it end up so badly for them in some of the cities that were competing for being HQ2? This was so sad to read parts of this in like in hindsight of knowing what was going to happen because at the start of HQ2 they put together this policy team of policy gurus and people who really you know studied the macroeconomics and such of to identify one city in the US where they could expand beyond Seattle and it was kind of a room of people, bright-eyed, bushy-tailed, really reading over the data and really hoping that they would be able to help revitalize and grow a city and bring all of these tens of thousands of high-paying tech jobs to a city. And as we all know, in hindsight, what ended up happening was they chose DC and New York with you know a little bit of an expansion to Nashville which just seemed so obvious from the start of like, oh, so you're just going to the large population centers where Bezos already has a house and where there are already plenty of high-paying tech jobs. Like this was not the revitalization project that it was set up to be. And then, of course, the next step beyond that being that Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and more representatives and uh, political leaders from Queens actually kind of rebelled against Amazon even coming to Queens and they ended up not actually moving there. But I didn't know the whole story behind it, right? Like, and, and you know, I, I, I am skeptical in some ways because I think I read it first as a reader as it was going on and seeing like, oh, duh, you just chose New York and DC, like way to just like get all of these cities around the country all excited thinking that they were going to be able to bring jobs to their city when you weren't even going to consider them. The story that they paint in the book is a little different. Um, you know, they... First, they needed to move out of Seattle simply because they just didn't have space. Uh, you know, they own one fifth of the prime real estate in Seattle uh, is owned by Amazon. So it was mostly, I, I think they set it up that they were just running out of space in Seattle. And Jeff Bezos has this idea of, well, let's pit cities against each other to give us the best uh, tax benefits for going to these cities. And, you know, initially it was like very transactional and set up that way. And you know, Jeff Carney, who worked in the Obama White House, was in charge of this. And, you know, city mayors and such like said that they did not like how it was basically like, we're going to choose the city that gives us the best tax benefits. It like felt so transactional for about two days. But then the public turned and like the public saw it and they were like, oh, this is so cool. Like we want Amazon to come to Manchester, New Hampshire or to... Uh, Birmingham, Alabama, or, you know, like all of these very small cities that were never really going to be considered. But so these cities, you know, they offer to change the city name to Amazon. They like painted the street saying, come here, Amazon. They submitted all of these videos to try and convince Amazon to come there. And then what happened was as they were in this process of choosing HQ2, they ran into many more issues in Seattle and it became much more urgent for them to find a city that had enough real estate quickly and had enough people quickly so that they could really move because it became clear that they just weren't going to be able to expand in Seattle. Seattle started to pass like headcount laws and such 
sorry, headcount taxes and such that would require them to pay more. So their motivations changed and then they started to focus in on where's a place that we can do this quickly. And that's where it became New York and DC. So that's, you know, a little bit of like the story behind it as to like, maybe they thought at the start that they were going to be a little more open. But then because uh, Seattle kind of, you know, by Bezos's thinking started to kick them out, they didn't have a choice They uh, to re- revitalize the place. They needed to move to a place where they were able to move in immediately. Yeah. And just an FYI, I think in hindsight, Amazon handled the process in a way that was pretty obnoxious. But at the same time, I think New York made a terrible decision not including Amazon and Queens. I mean, with the pandemic happening and with the kind of flight from New York City that happened during the pandemic, would have been nice to have a big economic engine that was just building up in New York. Anyway, that's my own personal opinion, quite an aside. Uh, So HQ2 kind of ends in a negative light for Amazon. I'm wondering how Amazon handled the pandemic and how that's covered in the book as well, because that also had both pros and cons for Amazon's image throughout the country. Yeah, so that is basically the last chapter goes into pretty deep detail on uh, Amazon's response to COVID. Yeah, the the way that they portray it, and I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, is that Jeff kind of like came back to work. Like he stopped, um, you know, he used to take off like Wednesdays to go to the Washington Post and Mondays to go to Blue Origin or something. I'm, I'm probably wrong about the days, but like he became like full-time Amazon CEO again, like really like getting into gear and like meeting with a lot of like political leaders and things like that. And, you know, being like the public face of Amazon in a way that he had kind of stepped back from a little bit. I thought that the portrayal they gave, yeah, is definitely very mixed. So I think on the one hand, lots of Amazon workers ultimately got COVID. I think they say 20,000 um, in the in the book. But the other position that Amazon makes and that they they do repeat in the book is that no other company has actually told us that information. So we don't really know like how many Walmart employees, uh, you know, ended up with COVID or anything like that. Like Amazon is basically the only ones that have actually disclosed this information to us. And they did a lot of crazy things in order to to get there, which included literally building their own testing laboratories for COVID because there just wasn't enough capacity to be able to keep their workers coming in and getting tested regularly. And so they literally just like hired scientists and turned, you know, facilities into labs and started doing their own testing. They, you know, kept going through the pandemic, which did, you know, help a lot of people obviously being able to order things when they weren't able to go out. But they definitely put a lot of people into like risky situations as well in terms of their employees. And so Certainly, a lot of people did get sick. You know, Amazon contends that much of that may have been in the community and not not from their work. And obviously, I don't think we'll, we'll ever really know the answer there. But it was it was very interesting to hear about the sort of technical advances that they made the, and the ones that succeeded and failed. They they started to use um, like video cameras in the warehouses to do contact tracing because they've been trying to do you know have people monitoring for keeping people apart and things like that. And it just wasn't really working. Yeah, I, I'd, I'd love to hear what what y'all took away from the the COVID stories as well. I thought it was interesting how the that chapter started positive, right? Like it was like, here's all of the things that Amazon did, which, I, you know, I, I would say like me as an outsider, I, I was unaware. Um, I think what I was more aware of during COVID with Amazon was all of the warehouse workers that didn't have PPE and then that they fired a bunch of whistleblowers, right? They had whistleblowers who were trying to track uh, how many COVID cases there were and trying to share that through a Facebook group and such. And Amazon kind of responded by firing them. So 
to me, it was interesting that Brad Stone decided to like start the chapter by talking about all of those positive things. And short as you pointed out, right, like the you know building their own testing site and using a lot of technology to try and monitor social distancing and such. You know, it, it's just obviously like editorial license. He had he also had the option to start with the negative things that they did, and then like say, but they also tried to do these. You know, it, it, it's interesting because Amazon was like one of the first companies to go remote, right? Like in that chapter, Bradstone actually talked about how it was like March 2nd or something when they went remote. They In February, they had a meeting with an immunologist to like learn more about COVID. And like the guy says that he was like very impressed at how well informed they were. And they were asking him about R0 and um, how to stop the spread and everything. And that was in February. And then they decided very early in March to go remote with their white collar employees. And it seems like they were not as ready to understand and like figure out what to do with all of their blue collar and warehouse employees. And, you know, I, I think that there is a little bit of a theme, although like not as stated in the book that like there are two classes of workers at Amazon and Jeff Bezos like clearly sees that there are two classes of workers. There's the skilled and the unskilled. And he really does not have much respect for the unskilled workers, right? Like, I mean, he thinks that having people work at the same company for three years that they start to lose their drive and they become, you know, more a burden and, uh, and such. So it's like they've changed the policies so that you no longer get raises after three years if you're a warehouse worker. They've changed it so that they no longer get any uh, deferred stock. Everything is just paid at, uh, you know, their $15 an hour. But they also bring up that, like, there are potentially employees that when they changed that to $15 an hour that actually lost on their total comp because they stopped offering stock bonuses and such. So to me, that was a little bit of the theme was like uh, that they have their two classes of workers. And I think Jeff Bezos really treats the unskilled workers in the warehouse and fulfillment centers as replaceable. Um, not sure if I have like too negative a, a takeaway there. I, I think there's some great social commentary there between the lines from Bezos. I, I think Bezos' first job was actually at McDonald's. And a lot of people talk about McDonald's as being a first a great first job because it's a transitional job. It's a job that teaches you about good work habits and gets you ready for your entire career in the workforce. And I think what he's be- what Bezos is basically saying with his policies are that's how he sees the jobs at Amazon warehouses. He doesn't see those as permanent jobs like you mentioned Eli. They even mentioned that he actually encourages employees to do educational training that Amazon pays for while they're working in the warehouses so they can up their skills and get different jobs. He doesn't want people doing this job for the rest of their lives he, because like he said, he, people get tired of it. They start, it creates problems for him. They, they want to unionize. They want to uh, get more benefits over time. And so he'd rather just have them as cogs in his machine for a short period of time and have them move on to something that probably he justifies as being more fulfilling for them long-term. I, have no doubt after reading this book that if he could, he would automate everything and just remove the human component to to Amazon. At the same time, I think another theme in this book is not just about the warehouse employees, but also the employees at Amazon headquarters and how how poorly they're treated in many ways. There's there's talk about stack ranking and how that affected people's morale, and also about just the incredible hours and incredible demands that were put on employees working on engineering teams. Personally, 
as a software developer, would I want to work at Amazon? No. I know some people who I went to college with who are very happy working as software developers at Amazon. So I'm sure, you know, experiences vary. But at the same time, there's probably some, when there's smoke, there's fire, right? There's probably something there about how dehumanizing the culture is at Amazon, both at the headquarters and also in the warehouses. Yeah, I think that's a good point. What what were some of uh, y'all's takeaways on the uh, culture, I guess, more at headquarters uh, that was discussed in the book? So I think what has always been, you know, widely shared about Amazon is the focus on six page documents as the way that the company runs. So I, I, f- I find that interesting. I've never worked at a company that really operated that way, although I've certainly written, you know, six page documents at work from time to time. I don't know if there were six pages specifically, but, you know, structured things around um, documents, depending on what kind of material I was trying to convey. So that is like a a big part of the culture. People write these documents and then people spend like the beginning of the meeting reading it. So everyone is at like the same level and then like a discussion takes place in order to make decisions. I think like the competitive nature of the culture is definitely something that comes across a lot. The fact that people are being like heavily measured and evaluated and, you know, they go through these these uh, twice a year uh, OP1 and OP2, I, th- I think it, it, they're called, uh, cycles where um, everyone is being reviewed and, you know, metrics are being assessed. And again, they come to those with like six page papers to talk about, you know, like what their business is and how they're trying to grow it and, you know, try to prove the value of what it is that they're like building for Jeff and the the rest of the, the S team. Seems like it was very masculine for a long time, too. So it's, I, I think there was only one woman on the S team for a very long time. And then I think recently that's that started to change a little bit where there, there are, um, you know, there's more more female representation. But yeah, those are a couple of couple things that jumped out to me. How about you, Kopech? Absolutely. And this is a book that doesn't go into that in like its own chapter. We've read a lot of books this season about corporate culture and about corporate philosophy. Instead, this book kind of demonstrates it throughout the chapters by showing you how things were during the development of a product or the operation of some element of Amazon. But a few just like smaller management techniques that come through are things like one-way doors versus two-way doors, the idea that there's certain strategic decisions you can make that you just can't back out of, the idea of two pizza teams where there's a certain team size that's really ideal to work on a new innovative product. And when you get too much larger than a certain size, it actually starts to create too much overhead. Things like when you're figuring things out, it's better to do a lot of experimentation in big ways instead of doing very incremental bits of experimentation to really see if something is a good direction. There's a lot of these like little management techniques that come through in the book and are enlightened by various product teams' experiences but are not really like given their own chapter where you just get like, here's the philosophy of Amazon. Yeah, I think they weave the the leadership principles, which, you know, easy, easy enough to Google and come up on the Amazon recruiting and job site uh, pretty easily. So those, those are weaved throughout the book of like frugality and leaders are always right and think big and such. And um, I think Brad Stone just tries to point to those themes with his vignettes of different stories. Yeah, I mean, I agree with both of your points. I mean, like, it seems like it's a pretty abrasive culture, right? Like, and a lot of the stories of Bezos tearing up a six-page document when somebody comes in the meeting because he's, like, unhappy with something in it and, like, kicking them out and telling them to go think bigger or something. And, like, there's a lot of stories in there that actually, like, when that happens, um, everyone 
tells the story in a positive light, right? Like, and you're just like, okay, being somebody who has not drank the Kool-Aid here, like, this is abusive. Like, this <laughs> this is abuse that you deal with at work. You should not have to deal with your boss doing this. And it just felt like in such sharp contrast uh, compared to Radical Candor, which we read last month, where I think she would have said, like, yeah, maybe there's a time when you rip up the document because, like, that's how you know how you're going to get something across to somebody. And it's because you care about them. Um, and because you've already had this conversation and, like, they're just not getting it, so you rip it apart, right? I don't think that that's what's going through Jeff Bezos's mind when he's doing that. Like, I don't... It just didn't seem like he's trying to get that person to grow. I think it was more like just emotions coming across. Yeah, if I had to summarize how I felt about Amazon's culture in one sentence, I would say the book makes it seem like it's success at all costs. Like, it's dehumanizing. It's whatever we need to do to make this work. Let's do it. and. That maybe that's not fair because obviously, you know, this is biased by the author's own experience with the company, right? And I have read, again, I have friends who work at Amazon who have great experiences working there. But that's what comes across in the book is they will do anything it takes to gain market share in a, in a product segment. Okay. So I think we've talked quite a bit about kind of things we don't like about Amazon's culture, but the culture actually at some of the other institutions that Jeff Bezos manages are quite different. Let's get a little bit into the Washington Post and Blue Origin. Can you tell us a little bit about why Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and how he's fixed the problems there? So it doesn't go into a whole lot of depth on the Washington Post, but I think it was interesting. Um, the it seems like he was actually approached directly. So it was kind of less that he, it was even something he was really interested in at first. But as, you know, politics and the media were changing, I guess he, he changed his mind and decided it was something that he wanted to purchase. Um, and he used it to kind of become a Washington power broker to some degree. So he bought a big mansion in Washington, D.C. He, you know, while he was even having that, you know, renovated, he was hosting these salons where all the political and other, you know, DC hotshots would gather together and, you know, hear from interesting speakers and, you know, he would have, you know, opportunity to meet these people and influence them. And so I think, you know, honestly, that's a big part of it for him. It doesn't seem like he took a very hands-on approach to the the news itself, which I think is is good that I think he, he gave a lot of uh, deference to the, the news organization and he, you know, invested a lot in it to, to help them grow. And he did do a lot on the technology side as well. So, you know, invested in the platform that they use for publishing and they even like resold that to, to other players in the space and, you know, started to, to generate additional revenue in that way. They grew, you know, subscribers dramatically such that it is now like a successful enterprise, even though at first he was having to, to sink lots of money into it. I think now it, it actually is generating uh, profits. And so, you know, it seems like he was able to kind of clean house a little bit on like the tech side and, and you know, make clear that it, this needed to be a business that, that really operated successfully, but uh, also did like put in the resources to, you know, pay for, you know, a large staff of, of journalists and uh, technologists to be able to uh, achieve success in the digital future for, for newspapers. Yeah, and I agree, Short. Like, unlike at Amazon, it did feel like he was much more deferential to the Washington Post staff and the way that they do things. And like, looking to learn from them. Um, you know, he, the book mentions specifically how when he would have 
staff meetings and such with the Washington Post or, you know, seminars that he wanted to make sure that Marty Baron, the editor at the time, would be like on stage with him. And that's even like highlighted at the end of the book with the photos that there's a picture of the two of them on stage. And it just didn't seem that he was doing that with Amazon as much, right? Like, but he wanted to make sure that kind of everybody was being brought along and he was really asking for feedback. And then there were, there were like other positive stories and it like, or somewhat positive. Um, there was one reporter uh, that was imprisoned in Iran and Bezos, when he was released 18 months later, uh, Bezos flew to Germany in his private jet and picked up the reporter with his family and everything and flew him back. And I, I think like, it seems like the Washington Post staff would actually think that he like really cares about them pretty deeply in a way that it just d- doesn't feel as clear uh, with the Amazon staff. And I think it also like he cited in the book thinking about Washington Post um, and I guess Blue Origin as well as his big philanthropic endeavors and the things that, you know, he would hang his hat on at the end of his career, kind of looking back at where he's had an impact. So I think he acts a little differently with them. Yeah. And the the Jamal Khashoggi incident was um, portrayed in the book briefly as well. And I don't know if you've seen the uh, the documentary, The Dissident, it's a really incredible story. But I, I don't know that we want to go through through all the details here, but that he on the anniversary of the day that Jamal Khashoggi had disappeared and been been murdered inside the Saudi embassy in uh, Istanbul. He went there with uh, Khashoggi's, I believe it was his fiance. I don't think they were actually married, um, who was waiting for him outside when he when he never came out, uh, you know, attempting to get the the paperwork for them to, to be able to get married. So, yeah, I mean, he did go to bat for his reporters. And I think that it seems like the culture there has is definitely, definitely different from Amazon. Anything else we want to say on uh, Washington Post, Kopech, before we talk about Blue Origin? Washington Post seems like his fun hobby. Blue Origin is like his lifetime passion and serious hobby, and maybe more than a hobby, more like a calling for him. I think we should go on to Blue Origin. So tell us a little bit about how Blue Origin started. It's not really been of his three companies, the most successful, we can say. Yet there's another company that started around the same time, SpaceX, that has been wildly successful and is in the same space, for lack of a better word. So why has Blue Origin not been as successful, at least in terms of monetary success, as SpaceX? And why is Jeff Bezos so passionate about it? Yeah, so I don't know that I can answer all those questions, but I'll try. And Eli, feel free to to pitch in as well. Blue Origin was originally founded to actually try to figure out alternative methods of spaceflight. So they they were really basically a think tank where like authors like Neil Stevenson and others were being paid by Blue Origin to like come up with novel ideas for how, you know, humanity might travel through the stars and they could, you know, without using liquid, you know, propulsion. So not using rocket fuels instead, I don't know, using nuclear power or uh, I don't know, I'm sure there's plasma ideas and all, all kinds of crazy things. I actually have, there's a guy I went to high school with who who got his PhD in uh, alternative space, space travel technology. I think he was focused on plasma is why that jumped to mind for me. But I think he basically just proved that it, it wouldn't work. <laughs> um, and effectively, that's what happened is they they did a lot of exploration and basically nothing came of it. And so then they pivoted after a few years to say, okay, we're just going to build a spaceship. We're going to do it in a more traditional way. You know, we're going to build a rocket um, and we're going to make it more efficient. Um, and so they are similar to SpaceX in that they are tr- building reusable, you know, rockets as a, as a method to make it cheaper to get to space. 
and I actually had forgotten this, although I'm sure I knew it at the time, that Blue Origin actually did beat SpaceX in the race to um, having the rocket booster actually land successfully rather than, you know, being discarded as it had historically been the case uh, prior to Blue Origin and now SpaceX's success and being able to to land these these boosters after after the fact and then reuse them, which is a big, big help in, in reducing the cost. So. Why have they been less successful? They were much smaller, They and they didn't go after government contracts, which allowed SpaceX to grow a lot bigger. I think that seemed to me like the the big reason for their failure was Jeff just wanted to run it himself. He didn't want to go after government contracts. He wanted to be able to do what he wanted and not be beholden to these government contracts, I think. And that led to, you know, it, it was all coming out of his pocket. And so he was not able to spend remotely what SpaceX was with that with those government funds coming in. But what, what do you all think? Yeah, it seemed it seemed to me like it wasn't set up to be profitable or or really even to make money. It, it seemed like it was just set up with this memo that Bezos wrote at the start where he was like, I acknowledge that I'm going to lose a lot of money doing this. Um, and that there aren't going to be returns for many, many years. So, you know, it, whereas SpaceX, I don't think was set up with exactly that same mindset that it was just going to be a place to sink money into. I, and I, I think it was kind of seeing the success of SpaceX and seeing the government contracts that they got and how I think the government contracts kind of uh, pushed their technology further and further uh, that triggered the competitive spirit with Bezos and is, you know, he's now trying to push Blue Origin beyond where it's been for the past few years, including uh, now doing a commercial space flight this summer, right? The tidbit that I would just want to call out about Blue Origin that I found really interesting was that he talked about spaceflight in his valedictorian speech in high school. And, you know, so it says in the book, in his valedictorian speech at Miami Palmetto Senior High School, Bezos ruminated on solving the problems of overpopulation and pollution by putting millions of people into orbiting space stations. And... No, I just I just like the vision that he had a goal uh, set when he was in high school and he's on his way to achieving it now. Okay, thinking about the book as a whole, what story about Jeff Bezos or Amazon or his other ventures really resonated with you the most? What was your biggest and most important takeaway from the book? I don't know if this was the most important, but it was definitely the most like genuine moment that I think they shared was when he was giving a speech and his son was introducing him. He told the story about how when he was, I think his son was 19 at the time and, you know, so a college student and he was introducing his father. He said, you know, when I was like nine years old, my dad uh, made this electromagnet for me. He, you know, wrapped this, uh, you know, copper coil around a nail and attached a battery to it and, you know, caused it to, to pick up some metal items. And he didn't just stop there. He then like went and got a whiteboard and like was explaining to me how, you know, all this electromagnetism worked. And it, it finally clicked for me because he'd actually done this multiple times before. And it was just like a really interesting picture into like the non-business side of Jeff Bezos and very much, you know, different from the the other non-business side of Jeff Bezos that we saw in the book. And so I just thought that was a, a really like um, interesting moment. I think the biggest takeaway for me about Jeff Bezos and his management style which we've already talked about in depth was is just how involved he was in so many of these projects and like as a CEO that he was attending you know multiple meetings per week uh, and essentially just being like a project manager on uh, or a product manager on some of these uh, projects and it, it was just interesting to see like okay so like that's what drives success when he is able to trust other parts of his company or just running 
more my quip that I felt like a theme I saw throughout the book is how little he see. I, I don't know if it's not how little he respects R&D, but how much he looks for things for free, right? Like, I mean, we, we talked about HQ2, how it was like he was really focused on the tax benefits that he was going to get from it. And I think either in the book or somewhere else that I read, he was annoyed that Elon Musk got more tax benefits than he did. So they like wanted more. Um, but there were just like these themes throughout the book where rather than hire somebody or invest in something, they tried to like run a competition to get feedback. So they did it with Amazon Studios where they had people submit scripts like for free. They just like ran a script submission competition uh, for their you know, new television series that they were going to do. And like, you know, as can be expected, no professional writers actually submitted any scripts because they were like, no, what's up? Like, this isn't how it works. And then a a bunch of non-professional writers submitted scripts and it was all like, not good. He he, like did the same thing with like a warehouse picking arm that they were looking to build. They like tried to host a competition where like the payout was like $20,000. And they were like, oh, like build a warehouse picking arm and like you have the chance of winning $20,000. And everyone's like, what? Like you need a bigger payout than that or just hire people to do it. Um, And then, you know, like he actually did the same thing like for his own personal charitable donations uh, where he was like, oh, I think it's time for me to start giving me some money away. And like on Twitter, it was like, give me ideas and like, please submit ideas of places I should give money. Whereas like, you know, at the Gates Foundation or Mackenzie Scott, what she actually did was like, she hired a consultant to advise her on places uh, where she should give money to. So it, it was just a theme that I kind of saw throughout where he was like, I want to run a competition and have people do all of this research for me so I don't have to do it myself. For me, I guess it's the relentlessness. Like, it's incredible how hard everyone at Amazon works from the warehouse workers all the way up through Jeff Bezos and what it really takes to become a company like Amazon. There's no shortcuts. There's just an incredible amount of hard work. And I think there's a lot of great parallels here to kind of Microsoft. And I think there's a lot of parallels between Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates as well. So I was really impressed by Amazon reading the book. But at the same time, I also was kind of like, this is not a place that is really healthy for all the people that work there. And I'm actually not somebody who is usually impressed by these kind of stories. I always think, oh, they're anecdotal, but I really got a sense from this book that Amazon is not a healthy place to work for a lot of its workers. And I think that's unfortunate. Okay. So is there anything we missed? Is there anything we didn't talk about from Amazon Unbound that you'd like to mention? One random anecdote that I thought was interesting was just around the fact that when Amazon wanted to lease planes, they actually negotiated warrants for the ability to to purchase shares in those companies for, you know, under the the current market price. And so they actually like made $500 million on announcing like a $250 million, you know, spend just by virtue of uh, the increase in their stock price and like the increase in the stock prices of these other uh, companies that they were ultimately going to use. So I thought that was just like a, it was a funny little like story of of Bezos being really happy about how someone had executed something because it sort of paid for itself to to Eli's point. There was one crossover point that I really liked, which was uh, when they were building the Amazon Alexa, they had to kind of come up with an Amazon recommended product in each category so that somebody could uh, buy something through Alexa. And that's uh, why they now have 
Amazon recommended products on the retail site, uh, which is something that I frequently use. So I was kind of interested to read about that crossover. And of course, the most important question of all, do you recommend this book to our listeners? If you do, who should read it? Well, I already gave it away earlier, but yes, I do recommend the book. I would say anyone interested in Amazon or Jeff Bezos, anyone you know interested in e-commerce, frankly, um, and yeah, I mean, anyone who you know wants to just read a, an, an interesting business story. Yeah, I'd recommend it because I, I mean, Amazon is just such an important part of our economy, essentially, so it's good to know how the company operates and kind of everything that it's in. The, the caveat that I would say is I would recommend it as an audiobook, actually. Um, you know, sometimes I jump back and forth between using audio or reading books for this. And I find that like when it's a real management book and I want to take notes on here's how I want to change my management style or like, okay, that's something good for me. Like, then I want to physically read the book. But this book, I didn't feel like I got any of that, right? Like it, I, there's hardly any changes that I'm going to make in how I work because of this book, except, you know, like try and not act the way that it seems managers at Amazon do, right? Like a lot of things that I don't want to do based on this book. And because of that, I think that it's like a faster read uh, to just listen to it ironically on Audible. Uh, at, you know, like a 1.5, 1.8x kind of pace. And then you just hear the stories um, and you have a little bit of entertainment. Yeah, I would definitely recommend this book. Amazon, like you mentioned, Eli, is the most important company arguably in the world. You could say it's definitely in the top five. And if you really want to comprehensively understand its history, Bradstone's two books, The Everything Store and Amazon Unbound Together, will really give you the whole arc. And they are the most comprehensive books on the company at this point. So it's your best bet. At the same time, I agree with you that there's really not a lot that you're going to learn here that's going to be like, this is how I should change what I'm doing in my career, or this is how I could be an entrepreneur like Jeff Bezos. These are more just company histories, and they're fun and entertaining, and they're great storytelling, and he's a good writer, but they're not something that is really going to help you that much with your career. But I would absolutely recommend them to anyone who's at all interested in Amazon. Okay, so next month, we're actually not reading a book. It's going to be our season two finale. Sadly, we have to say goodbye to season two. We're going to be recapping the books that we liked the best, the books that we didn't like so much, and kind of the things that we learned over the season. So we hope you'll join us next month. I think it's going to be a lot of fun. Is there anything that either of the two of you want to plug? And how can our listeners get in touch with you? Nothing to plug this month. Uh, you can... Follow me on Twitter at emich46, or I guess I will just continue to plug my dog's Instagram because it's adorable, Archie, the Prince of NYC. And you could follow me on Twitter at David G. Short. And I'm at Dave Kopeck, D-A-V-E-K-O-P-E-C. We look forward to seeing you again next month. Don't forget to hit follow or subscribe on your podcast player of choice, and we hope you have a great month.